Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to welcome Kelly Thomas. She's an agent at Serendipity Literary Agency. Kelly, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is very exciting because I love the story of how you got into publishing. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I always knew that I loved reading. And as a kid, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. But I didn't really know what that would look like when I was in school. You know, I just didn't really consider that there were people on the other side of books bringing everything to life. So, you know, I was an English major, but I didn't have guidance counselors who were really guiding me into the direction of publishing, which is very unfortunate because I grew up 20 minutes outside of the city. So, oh, yeah, it would have been so easy for me to just go and do an internship at, at an agency or a publishing house. So, yeah, so I came out of school and, and I, you know, had an English degree and I did not want to teach. So I kind of just fell into sales because I, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of English majors also that we just, you know, we didn't know what to do with our degrees. So, you know, it wasn't really until years later when I was actually, I had written a manuscript and I was learning about what agents want and the submission process. And I kind of started realizing all that goes into the publishing process, you know, and that there were actual people, you know, making it all come together, you know, and as, as I've learned now, it takes pretty much a village to publish a book. So, yeah. So, you know, I was, I was a headhunter. I was a recruiter for years on the sales side, which ironically is it's actually kind of similar as the recruiter, because when I was a recruiter, I, you know, I was matching candidates to the right job. Whereas being an agent, I'm matching authors to the right publishing houses. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of the same stuff, you know, negotiating contracts and protecting the candidates, you know, now protecting authors, looking out for their best interests, you know, having all of those uncomfortable conversations on their behalf. So yeah, so I, I started to think that I wanted to go into agenting. So when I made the decision, I started emailing every literary agency I could find. <laughs> Didn't you say you approached 75 agencies? Yeah, 75, probably even more, honestly. I don't even know the full number. That's probably rounding down. I think that was a smart approach. I mean, the thing is, people don't realize how hard it is to get a job in publishing. I mean, either you're incredibly lucky and you know someone who knows someone who knows someone yeah. or other, I'm trying to avoid using the word serendipity here, um, <laughs> you know, something serendipitous happens yes. and, it, and it works out. But I, I think it's really admirable that you were just like, I'm going to make this happen. And you did it Thank yourself. You. I did. I basically had to kick down some doors. <laughs> I had, you know, it's, it, I've always watched this one motivational speaker. His name is Randy. I think his last name is pronounced posh. I might be saying it wrong. And he, his words have always resonated with me. And he, he basically has this slogan where he says, the brick walls in life are there for a reason that the brick walls are not there to keep us out. They're there to show the people who want it, how badly they want it 
and the brick walls are there to keep the other people out who don't want it as badly. Mm. And well, there are a lot of walls yeah. all the way to publishing. So yeah. um, can you tell us some of the things that worked and any advice you might have for people who want to do the same? So what I did was having been a recruiter really helped, you know, I rewrote my resume to focus more on my writing attributes. The fact that I'd done a lot of resume writing, I'd had some stuff published, articles, blogs, poems. So I included all of that, you know, all of the the bullet points in the resume, I had focused more on like the documentation stuff that I was doing. And then really like my sales side, because agenting is it's sales, basically, you know, you're selling a product, which is the manuscript, you know, if you if you kind of look at it that way. So I did that. And then, you know, I, I'd gone through, I think it was Query Tracker, which had all of the agents listed. And I just started, I kept a spreadsheet. I'm always super organized. Love my little Excel spreadsheets. They're color coded because I'm a dork. <laughs> and I just kind of went through it methodically that way. And, you know, I just, I always had subscriptions to Poets and Writers Magazine and Writers Digest. And I would just follow, you know, everything that was going on in the industry and just try to embrace myself in it and learn about it. Did you personalize your cover letters? That's one thing I often tell people to do when they're applying to work in publishing. You know that I'd like to work with you because you worked on this book, that kind of thing. I always think that cover letters are a great thing. And the thing is you have to tailor them to each specific job that you want and even each place that you're looking to go into because you want it to be you know, unique to that particular person. You want to identify with the things that they look for. You know, if there's one person that you have something in common with, oh my gosh, I also went to Pace. We have that in common. Or, you know, do you know so-and-so? Because if you have something in common with them, you want to speak to that and you want to address it and you want to find a commonality between you and them. Because nobody wants to feel like they're just getting a generic, stark template that's going out to 50 million people. I get a lot of those. The dear agent, I would like to work in publishing. Therefore, you should hire me. (laughs) I get a lot of things addressed to Mr. Thomas Kelly because I have two first names and two what could also be last names. So that's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any best practices for people who are doing the same? I know it's a really hard thing to do, especially right now, but I also wonder if there's an opportunity for people who want to join the industry now while living somewhere else. Yeah, I would say get your resume up on all the job boards. I know that we, because we're in the industry, we have access to kind of the inside job boards on like publishers marketplace. But if that's something that they could get a subscription to, that would be well worth it. And then always, I believe it's poets and writers at the end always has some sort of classifieds. I know they have contests, things like that. You know, I always tell people, submit your stuff as much as you can, everywhere you can. You know, too much is never enough because <laughs> the more places you submit, the more, you know, accolades you can acquire, the more your resume is going to look impressive. People are going to want to talk to you. It's going to show that you are have merit as a writer. So just just keep going, right? Someone once told me, writers write. And I think that that is the greatest thing. Because you can't just write one thing and stop. You know, you can't just throw your hands up in the air and say, okay, it's not a blockbuster right out of the gate, so I'm going to stop. I think you have to hone your skills, which is only going to come from practice. So, so don't stop writing. Keep submitting stuff. Keep submitting your resume. Keep learning about the industry. Keep listening to this podcast. You know, 
Which, yeah, before we started recording, you said you'd listened at the beginning of your publishing journey, which I we did. are honored. I did. I binge listened to you guys because it helped me so much because I was able to listen to you know what other agents had to say and I could learn about what the editors were looking for. And I mean, I would even sit here while I was working, listening, taking notes sometimes. That's how much <laughs> I love this podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, I think there's something really valuable in just hearing people talk about the industry, even if it's in the background, even if you're doing laundry, even if you're yeah. you know, driving a minivan with your entire neighborhood of kids in it <laughs> and you can't really focus. You just need to get it into your head somehow. Yeah. You know, I found that my first few years in publishing, I did not know how much I knew. But I, I found that people would ask me questions and I would be very surprised to know to notice that I knew the answer. And I think it was just from overhearing a lot of conversations. Yeah. That is a great way to learn through osmosis. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I love how so much of what you say is good for applying to jobs and publishing is also really solid querying advice. You know, yes. do your research, personalize your letter, keep sending it out, even if you don't get a yes right away. I think all of that's really important. Yeah. And with the queries, it's great because then you'll get feedback a lot of times from the agents. You know, some of them will just be also generic responses. Thank you for submitting, but no thank you. But sometimes you get really great agents that will actually give you advice and tell you, you know, where the issues are. And then you can take that and make productive changes and learn and grow from it. So yeah, the more, the more you query, the more of a chance you have to get better. A few weeks ago, we were talking to Jessica Watterson, and she said that she only has a position she has now because of a nice no from another agency saying, hey, I'm not the right fit, but maybe this other agency would be. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, those those little notes make a difference. (laughs) Yeah. There's not enough of that in the world. I always, when I do my rejections back, I always have my last sentence be something positive. You know, I may not be the right agent to champion this work, but there are so many other agents who may feel differently. So I encourage you to please keep keep sending your stuff out and good luck with your future writing endeavors. That's really important. I think a lot of people take a no as not for me. And I think you should stop. And it's very rarely that. Yeah. That might also be because I was on the other side because I went through that rejection process with a, with a manuscript of my own. So I kind of know where they're coming from and I want to always be a little kinder than some, some of the rejections I got were. (laughs) Did you get like really mean ones? Not too much. For the most part, they were nice, but you know, each one hurt a little bit. And then I started realizing that rejections were actually good things. And I, it gave me a chance to to learn and to grow and to build a thick skin and and to keep going. I think if 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 my first thing had been fantastic, if you know, and if I had Harry Potter on my hands with the first thing I wrote, I would not have a true appreciation for what goes into this process. So I also think it's really interesting that you were talking about how your guidance counselor didn't suggest publishing for you. Mine didn't either. I had absolutely no concept of how publishing worked until I got to college, but I was in rural California, so that makes sense. Do you know why your guidance counselor didn't suggest it for you just 20 minutes out of the city? I, I don't. And I've often wondered that because it would have changed my life. And I remember actually having to sit down with them. And this was the, you know, the, the, the or I should say the career counselor in college that should have really done that, you know, when we started having those conversations, um, junior, senior year about where do you go from here? You know, like for, for my sister is an architect. She went to school for architecture. She knew she was going to be an architect. 
I went to school for literature. I did not know what to do with that. I always knew I wanted to write, but I didn't know how. So I'd made those points to go to the career counselors to seek their advice. What are the jobs in writing? Because as far as I knew, writers starve. Mm. Um, and you always had to, you know, don't quit your day job. And I just, they never, nobody guided me toward it. And it, it really is so unfortunate. I wish I had the answer. I just, I don't know. Well, it is such a niche field. I wonder if that's part of it. But I also think that if we started telling kids in high school, hey, this is the thing you could do, they could start preparing then. I agree. I agree. So for all of the English teachers out there, make sure that you tell your students that they don't have to just be writers. They can go and work on the other side of books and be in publishing. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a writer inside publishing? I know the advice usually is that writers shouldn't join and work in editorial. What do you think about that? I think it's very helpful, to be honest. I went and did my uh, copywriter certification last year, and I think that that's the most helpful thing I've ever done because I really was able to master grammar in a way that even having my English degree didn't didn't really drill down to the nuances to, to grammar. So that has really helped me. And, you know, I'm able to do more editorial work for my authors than I probably should do. <laughs> I probably am spending more time cleaning stuff up and helping to polish, but it's, it's infinitely helpful for me because, you know, I can, I can give them advice. I can help them restructure sentences. You know, I can say, you know, we can do this better. Let's make this a little more poetic you know, I, I can see the issues that I've seen in my own writing. You know, you're starting too many sentences with the word I. Let's, let's you know, restructure this. So for me, it gives me more of kind of a keen sense to what a writer should be doing and, and what editorial-wise, you know, we're looking for. And it, it definitely helps me, you know, when I'm, when I'm going through submissions, there are so many in the inbox. It's, it's wild you know, trying to keep up with them. So I really go off of, you know, the first page. And if that writing is not strong, and and even just the first page, you know, I got to move on, because you're supposed to be, you know, putting your best foot forward as a writer. So I think it kind of gives me a better sense of what to look for and to make my job easier and, and quicker. I think it also probably helps in terms of an empathy gap, right? Because you know what it feels like to have your own work critiqued. And you know that sometimes, even if people aren't really saying bad things, it feels like they are sometimes. You know, just as I think it would be interesting if presidential candidates had to live on minimum wage for a month. I think I think it would be really interesting if agents had to join a writing workshop and write their own stories and see what it feels like to get critiqued on something that, you know, even if you're doing this just as a pre-certification to be an agent, it's still going to hurt. And I think that's going to teach you a lot about the process. So I, I appreciate that you've had that experience and I bet it makes it so that you're able to deliver feedback in a way that doesn't hurt as much. I wholeheartedly agree. I also, I've always ascribed to, and this might be because I, you know, I was in sales for so long. I like the build, break, build concept of giving feedback where you say something positive, you know, point out what you liked, mm-hmm. say the negative. Um, you don't have to necessarily sugarcoat it, but you say it because it is going to be constructive. And then you end on a positive note. That way you're not breaking the person. You're building them up. You give them the constructive feedback, you break them, but then you build them back up at the end. And, and I think that people appreciate that so much. And they learn from that and they are willing to accept what you say even more without it becoming a personal attack against them. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sandwich method. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are you looking for in your inbox? I mean, now that everyone knows that you are kind and understanding and sales focused, (laughs) I'm sure they are wondering what it is that could be a good fit for you. So why don't you talk a little about that? Awesome. So I love people that overcome adversity and are beating the odds. I love people that have leadership stories. I'm very focused on psychological stories. I love stories about you know, mental health, especially people that have had to kind of battle through mental health crises and and challenges and just, you know, enthralled with people that are able to, you know, overcome the worst parts of themselves. I'm drawn to strong female characters, uh, feminist stories, definitely always looking for own voices, marginalized voices, POC stories, especially, you know, African-American authors. That's, that's a huge part of what Serendipity Literary Agency is about. We've always, you know, since the inception, Regina Brooks is, is the owner and CEO, and she's an African-American woman. And she's always made that a large priority for, for herself and for the company. And, you know, a lot of our staff is very diverse and we've always been very strong on trying to make sure that we have uh, a lot of people that we can represent from all ethnicities and all nationalities. So that is always something that I'm looking for. I'm personally in love with true crime. Mm-hmm. I would love to see the next Anne Rules, The Stranger Beside Me, or the next kind of real life version of American Psycho. So let's see, the list I have is narrative nonfiction, memoirs, true crime, adult fiction, psychological thrillers, mysteries, suspense, comedies, plot-based twi- fiction and stories about leadership, overcoming adversity and beating the odds. This is a fan. Your inbox must be amazing. (laughs) I think so. I love reading through my submissions. So I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, we actually met at an event that Regina was hosting. I think it was a reading series in Brooklyn. And I loved that night. I loved everyone there. It was so nice to talk with you on a bit of a shallower note, they had macaroni and cheese that was baked into a mug. And it oh was probably gosh, yes. the best macaroni and cheese I'd ever had. It was so beautiful. Oh like, you know God, how some so cakes good. have that like drip layer around the edge. This had that of like cheese. Mm-hmm. And and I'm a cheese head through and through. You can keep the cake and cookies, but give me a block of cheese any day. I remember that well. <laughs> Um, what's it like to be, to be working at Serendipity and how did you know it was the right fit for you? Oh my goodness. It has been the most amazing thing that has ever happened to me. Truly. I've, I've never been happier in my life. It's like, I, I feel like I found home. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. Re- Regina has been the most incredible mentor. She just teaches me from the ground up. She lets me try things, learn from mistakes, but guides me. It really, it has been fantastic. You know, I've done, I've gone to a lot of events that she's gotten me into. I went to the National Book Awards last year, the after party, which was, oh my gosh, to be in a room with the best of the best in the book world. I was, I was nerding out that evening. (laughs) Oh, that's so exciting. But it, it means so much to have a supportive boss, especially when you're starting out, because there's so much to learn. And there's no way that you can just learn all of it immediately, which of course is the pressure that we often put on ourselves to just know it all right away. Yeah. But to be with someone who grows with you, I think is is really, really important. 
So I, I, I knew without a doubt that this was where I wanted to be. I'd met her for my interview at a, at a, uh, not a coffee house, but it was like a tea shop in Brooklyn. Mm. And we ended up talking for probably about three hours total. <laughs> and she had other interviews between me, but I brought my computer. And so in between I would go and I would have a bite to eat and I'd do a little work for the job I was doing then. And then that interview would leave and I would sit and talk with her for another half hour. And then the next person would come in and I moved to the side. Did they know that you were? <laughs> um, I don't know, but she was, she was hiring for a few different positions. She had a couple interns coming in as well. So it wasn't necessarily that I was, you know, stealing the spotlight. It just was a, an ongoing conversation. And, you know, I just really felt a connection with her and, I was, I was so intimidated, which is funny because I was a recruiter for so long and I trained people on how to interview. I've never in my life been afraid to go to an interview, but I was so intimidated by Regina. You know, she teaches MFA classes at Harvard and she is an aerospace engineer. She worked at NASA. She flies Uh, planes. (laughs) Yeah, she flies planes. There's nothing she can't do. It's crazy. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And so and the I'm tea company. Afraid. I mean, she just does everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really, really afraid to meet with her. And I was I was so amazed at how easy she was to talk to and how willing she was to, you know, take somebody on who hadn't been in the industry prior. But she basically said to me, you know, you have kind of both of the sides that you need in the industry. You have that English background, the, you know, the the writer in me. Um, that editorial side. But then I also had the sales side that you need as an agent. And she said, the rest I can teach you. So I can teach you the industry, you know, as long as you're willing to learn and you're willing to put the work in. And, and it's been amazing ever since. Oh, that's so lovely. So tell us a little bit more about you. What do you do when you're not working? Oh, goodness. Well, uh, I'm obsessed with my dog, little Miss Hazel. She is a puppy still. So she keeps me very busy. And this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but I love General Hospital. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I watch it every day. I've been watching it since I was five years old. You know, I would come home from school and my mom had it on, you know, and in hindsight, it's probably how I developed my love of stories. But uh, Mm. yeah, it's great. Salacious and outlandish and, you know, everyone's got an evil twin with a brain tumor and you know, everybody's come back from the dead sometimes twice, but yeah. And it's a funny story about that. Regina also watches General Hospital. So <laughs> there are times when we're at the office, when we just go on a tangent about some of the characters. And I think that our other colleagues in the office probably think that we're horrible, terrible gossips and that we're <laughs> talking about people in real life. <laughs> So we have to stop and and say, oh, no, 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 we're talking about General Hospital. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, how amazing to have a show that's on when you're a kid and on when you're an adult, too. That's pretty rare. It's it's extremely rare. I think the only other thing is maybe SNL. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Do you remember Toonsis the Driving Cat? That was on when I was a kid, and I thought that was just the funniest thing. I don't it's, remember it's that. It's this cat who's a horrible driver and then and like just drives cars off cliffs. And then <laughs> um and then another cat comes along who's like the perfect driver and Tunsis gets really jealous and like it makes the perfect cat disappear, I think. And like 
it's so ridiculous. But yeah, that that made an impression on me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love the old SNLs too. Big fan. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's something you changed your mind about in your time in the industry? Probably children's books. I I did not think that I was ever going to like children's books, but I came across two authors and I fell in love with their stories. And I decided to work with them and I just really enjoyed the process of being part of it and and helping to do the editorial on it and to make it, you know, the best possible version of the story that it can be. And they're so different, you know, they're so short, but they're so challenging because there's there's so much that goes into, you know, a picture book. It's There's so many elements that need to work together in such a small space. But when it's done right, it's so brilliant and they're, they can be so poetic and heartwarming and, you know, to be able to create something that are going to help children to, you know, learn about the world. It's, it's, it's been an amazing experience. And if you would have told me two years ago, I was going to be working on picture books, I probably would have laughed at you, but yeah, it's, it's great. It's funny to me when people think picture books are easier because they're shorter. They're so much harder. Yeah. (laughs) They're so much harder because, you know, to be able to, to have a successful plot in such a small space, you know, and to have it be, you know, under a thousand characters or a thousand words, it's, it's really hard. It is. Yeah. What's something you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? Oh, gosh. You know, for for my own authors or for any other author that might be signed with an agency, although I might not be emailing you or calling you every day, I want them to know that it doesn't mean that I've forgotten about them. We're just, we're working really hard on our end to bring the story to life behind the scenes. You know, and there's there's so many steps and so many processes that authors really aren't privy to. And, you know, we don't want them to be privy to because that's that's our burden. That is our job, you know, and, and it just becomes more and more, you know, as you move through the submissions phase to negotiating offers and then all the way through the publications process, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff that's time consuming. So, you know, I, I always do say to my author, so if you ever feel neglected, you know, I encourage you to please reach out, shoot me a text, send me an email, you know, uh, ask me for an update and I'll provide you with any and all feedback. But yeah, so, you know, don't don't think that we're, you know, not doing too much if you don't hear from us. And, and for writers that are querying, same thing applies. You know, it can take weeks. Sometimes, unfortunately, it can take months for us to get through all of them. I think right now we have like 1,400 in just our fiction submissions inbox alone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we actually might even need to shut that down while we try to sift through it all and play catch up. Well, and also I think one, pe- one thing people don't realize is that you can hear from somebody at any stage of the process. You can hear from an agent when they're liking it and they're like, hey, I just want you to know I like it. Or you can hear from them after they've read it and they're sharing it at their team. You know, kind of like like editors do this too. You know, sometimes you hear and I'm liking it. Sometimes you hear I'm getting second reads. Sometimes you hear I'm taking it to ed board. Sometimes you yeah. hear it past ed board and it's going to acquisitions. And sometimes you just get a deal memo in your inbox out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you don't, you don't always see all the steps along the way. In fact, you usually don't. And I think it's hard to know when more detail will stress people out versus when less detail is is really the way to go because then if if you don't know all of the steps of the process you might think that every single step has a huge risk with it 
And rather than be like, okay, we're doing this tiny step now, we're doing this tiny step now, we're doing this tiny step now, (laughs) I think sometimes it's better to just be like, you know, we're taking care of it. We will let you know as soon as there are any decisions to be made, um, that kind of thing versus got this email, got this email, got this email, got this email. <laughs> so. Yeah. And honestly, it would be so hard to find the time to to keep somebody abreast of every single layer that we were going through. So yeah, I agree. But it is hard to know. I, I can see how, and you know, I do have clients who say they want to know every single thing that happens and I, I'm fine with that too. And of course, I always send reactions from editors as they come in. But yeah, I think it's important to kind of understand each person's style and what exactly. will work best for them because we're all just trying to keep everyone happy and informed and in a place of being able to act thoughtfully versus out of fear. Yeah. And you know, and that's really comes down to being able to to read the person and to figure out your relationship with with that author or that editor. You know, some people need more handholding or communication where others are good, you know, for a couple of weeks and I know they'll just, you know, if something is really pressing or if they really need an answer, then they reach out. So it's it's a matter, I think, of just kind of building that relationship and knowing who needs what from you when. Yes. Definitely. And not just who needs what practically, but who needs what emotionally. Exactly. Yeah. Cause this is I mean, this is so emotional. It's I try to always say to the writers, like you have to take your writer's cap off and you have <laughs> to put your business cap on. Because <laughs> once it's you're done writing it, it's now a product, you know, it's a, it's essentially, it's a business. Let's try to look at it that way. You know, let's try to not be too emotionally invested in it, which you're never going to be able to completely do. But if you can try to pull back a little bit from that, it helps them because this is for them. It's something so emotional that they have spent hours and hours of their life and are so excited to get to this point. And I can understand. That said, if you're not going to be hurt. If it doesn't work out, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us something that isn't nearly as scary or hopeless as writer's fear it is. I think probably rejections, you know, kind of what we were talking about before that, you know, if you're not getting rejected, you're not trying hard enough. You know, it's, it's, it's not as scary as you think, you know, it's, it's actually a good thing because, you won't be stagnant as a writer. You know, you'll get better and you'll learn what agents and publishers are looking for, for, you know, and every rejection means that you've tried and you've been brave enough to put yourself out there and to do this new thing that's, you know, intimidating, but also exciting. And there's, you know, there's nothing worse in life than wasted talent, you know? So if you're getting rejections, it means you're refusing to keep your talent tied up inside of you and you're sharing it the world. And I think that that's a positive thing. And you won't be on your deathbed wishing you tried. Completely, yes. Because you know what? It's always better to regret the things that you have done than the things you have not. So get out and do it. (laughs) So if you had Google-level funding and the ability and encouragement to spend 20% of your time making something, what would you make? I don't think it would be something I would make. It would... So what I would do is... I have volunteered a lot with um, this organization, Animal Lighthouse Rescue. They rescue dogs off the street of Puerto Rico. That's actually who I, where I got both of the dogs that I have now. And it has just become a passion of mine to help volunteer with them and to help rescue these dogs. So I would probably invest that money into 
being able to streamline their processes, you know, during during the earthquake at the beginning of the year and hurricanes that they had a few years back, the, the shelters down there were just destroyed. So I would take that money and rebuild mm. the shelters. You know, I would streamline the transportation because right now the dogs are being considered cargo and, you know, they're underneath the plane and sometimes it can be, you know, hundreds of dollars to get them transported. And there has to be a person on each plane to be the handler. So I would probably buy planes that are designated just for the, for the dogs and get volunteers that I could set up at hotels and pay for the, their travel and food. And I would probably build a little dog farm up here yeah, where they could play and swim and be happy and frolic and, you know, never have to worry about where their next meal is coming from ever again. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. I, I love animals. And these, these, the, the Puerto Rican dogs, they call them Sados. They have the sweetest temperament. They truly know that you have saved their life. Mm. And they're, they're just so loving and sweet. And yeah, so I would probably take all that money and build this amazing dog farm and save all the puppies. And then I would spend all of my days reading books in the puppy farm and <laughs> puppies and books. It's a perfect life. <laughs> yeah, invite people up to, to read their submissions up there while playing with puppies. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> so tell us a story of a really fun day or night you've had in New York City. So this one is hard because I grew up right outside of New York City. So the city was my backyard for my whole life. So I have done so many things. You know, I've always taken advantage of the city as much as I can. You know, so I've done things like, you know, I've seen Shakespeare in the Park, you know, San Gennaro Festival, concerts at Coney Island, Broadway shows. I've even seen this was this was so cool. I did this as a kid. I went down and watched them blow up all the balloons oh, the night yeah. before. <laughs> so cool. Even better than the parade itself is watching them blow them up and watching them come to life the night before in the middle of the streets. So yes, yeah, so you can go and see for for those who haven't been to this <laughs> very wacky event, you can go and see the Macy's Day thanks Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, balloons being blown up on the Upper West Side. And I heard years ago it used to be kind of a small neighborhood thing, right? Like, weren't yeah. you able to walk around freely? And yeah. <laughs> when I went, it had those little metal gates, so everyone was kind of in a stuck. You know, once you were in in the the line, you could not get out of the line until you were all the way out. Oh, no, no. I mean, I might be showing my age now, but no, when I was a kid, we just walked around and you could pretty much walk almost right up to them. Wow. And and to see it on the ground, they're so huge. You don't even realize how large they are, you know, on TV or through, you know, when they're up in the air. But when they're on the ground, that the size of them, you know, they're their eyeballs are like <laughs> bigger than you. <laughs> yeah, that's such a fun New York thing to do. Yeah, it really is. And if you were a superhero, what powers would you have? Oh, I love this question. So because I listen to you guys all the time, I have thought about this question at length. <laughs> so at first I thought it would be flying because I always have dreams about flying. And I thought that that would be amazing. But then I started to really break it down and think, well, if I wanted to go to dinner in Italy, it would still take me a long time to get there. And then I would probably get cold. You know, would I have to bundle up? Would that slow me down? 
you know, and then I would have to think, well, I'd be crossing an ocean by myself and that could be really tiring. You know, I could get bored. And what if it starts to rain? (laughs) I'm going to get wet. (laughs) And I thought, well, at least on a plane, you know, I can nap. I can have cocktails. I'll have in-flight entertainment. So I've had to readjust my thinking to, okay, I'm going to teleport. That's good. Now, now I can pop back and forth between places and not worry about traffic or, you know, planes or COVID now, you know, I don't have to worry about flying. And I would probably use it to be a little bit of a jerk and to pull pranks on my friends. And I would just kind of pop in and pop out and scare the hell out of them. (laughs) (laughs) But I bet you could also help bring dogs back more comfortably (gasps) than on the plane. I could bring so many dogs back I, and I could snuggle them. I didn't even think of that. That, yes, teleporting 100% for the final answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your number one tip for writers? I would probably say just keep writing. As we were talking about earlier, writers write and, and you can't give up. I would say to also, you know, immerse yourself into writing as much as possible, you know, join community groups get feedback from other people um, who are going to be honest about your writing, but that who also are knowledgeable about writing and just knowing about the industry. You know, I, I love Poets and Writers Magazine and I love Writers Digest and I've kind of always had subscriptions to them and there's a lot of contests in the back. So just, just stay immersed in it, stay on top of it, write, submit, learn, grow. Yeah. Yeah. All those good things. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I don't know how to, I was trying to think of how to weave in the NASCAR book. Oh, yeah. So I'm. it, it kind of works to the fact that, so when I decided to change careers, I, I had just hit 40 and it was kind of a now or never moment for me. And it's ironic because the first book that I took on as, an, as a literary agent and the first one that I was able to get sold was this book from Bill Lester, who's a NASCAR driver. And he also, at just about 40 years old, decided to make a life change and decided to leave a six-figure career as a project manager and engineer at Hewlett-Packard and to really pursue. He had been doing kind of amateur racing up until then and uh, had struggled to find funding and decided to make that, that change at 40. And so there's there's a lot of kind of serendipitous synchronies there between my story and his. But yeah, so I'm, I'm so excited for that. That's the first one that I sold and it's coming out in February. So shameless plug. It's called Winning in Reverse. Nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Are you comfortable talking about the fact that sometimes it's harder to join our industry when you're not 22? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't sure if that would go against me, if my age would go against me because I wasn't straight out of college. What did work for me was that I had a lot of life experience and a lot of business experience and sales experience. And the fact that I had been a recruiter, which does have so many similarities, you know, in in terms of candidate care and author care, that I was able to use that to my advantage to make the shift. But I think in general, changing careers when you're not in your 20s or even your 30s anymore can be difficult. 
so I, I wasn't sure if, if it was going to go against me. And I was fortunate enough to have it not go against me as Bill was fortunate enough to have it not work against him. But I, I really think it's, it's, you got to keep going. You can't let those brick walls stop you. You have to keep trying and you have to find other avenues and you have to meet the right people. You have to network. You have to get yourself out there. You know, it can be done. It's probably harder. You know, my, my route into publishing was certainly not an easy one, but it, it can be done. I think if you want it badly enough, you know, I am, I'm just, uh, I'm a Virgo. I don't like taking no for an answer. I just keep pushing and going. And where can we find you online? So you can find everything about Serendipity Lit um, at Serendipity Lit. That's the same for our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And then on Twitter, I am at Kelly Thomas Lit. And of course, you can find me at the Manuscript Wishlist, where you can find everything that I'm looking for. And then our, our company's website as well at serendipitylit.com. Kelly, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.